morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 3, it's round about page 1220 in the Bibles that are in the pews. And we're going to pick up from uh, where Stephen and where we left off last week at verse 11. And we'll take it to the end of the chapter, that's right through to verse 24. But before we look at those 14 verses, I want to reread verse 10 because it kind of sets the scene. So here is the first part of 1 John 3 verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are. And I want you to stop there for a moment. This is how we know who the children of God are. You see, in John's context, lots of people were claiming to be children of God. Lots of people claiming to know Jesus. The problem was their lifestyles. Their attitudes and their actions and their behaviour contradicted all their claims. And so what John does is he puts pen to paper. And he identifies a number of key indicators that reveal the authenticity or otherwise of people's claims. And he says, here's how you know who is a child of God. Here's how you know who is the real thing, who is the genuine article, compared to those who just simply talk a good game. Lots of people who talk a good game. So, for example, and I'm just doing a bit of a recap here, this is not an exhaustive list, but a few weeks ago we highlighted three core indicators. Obedience, imitation and love. We know that we have come to know Jesus, writes John, if we keep his commands. Obedience to Jesus speaks volumes. Secondly, Verse 6 of chapter 2. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Christ walked. There must be an increasing imitation of Jesus. That's how you will know who the children of God are. They're becoming more and more like Jesus. Thirdly, verse 10, chapter 2. Those who love their fellow believers... They're the ones who live in the light. So the third indicator is your love for one another. And the point is this, and it's the primary reason why John wrote this letter. And he keeps coming back to it. He keeps returning to this time and time again right throughout the five chapters. You can know who the children of God are by observing the way they live their life. So don't just listen to what they claim. Watch how they live. So let's go back to chapter 3, verse 10. Here's the next little bit. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Now again, I want us to pause there because for John, there are two and only two Distinct groupings of mankind and humanity. Children of the devil and children of God. And I'll guarantee you that jars with some of us. It may even offend our sensitivities. 
But there is this explicit teaching in scripture. There's no middle ground. There's no third category. You're either one or you are the other. I kind of almost wish it wasn't like that. So stark. So clearly defined. Yet that's how it appears to be. But the question that throws up for us is this. What are the distinctions? What are the determining factors? How do you know if you are a child of God? Well let's read on in this chapter. Or what John says. Those do not do what is right are not, or that's to say those who do not do what is right are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. So if you don't do what is right and you don't love one another, it seems pretty clear. Now I'm going to leave the doing what is right bit, not because I don't want to deal with it, but primarily because our text for this morning focuses in on the second issue, our love for one another. Plus, the doing what is right dimension has already been covered at the beginning of chapter 3 in to, regarding our attitude towards sin. But in these next 14 verses, John returns to one of the key indicators of authentic Christianity. And right up front, he states it clearly. Look at verse 11 in your Bibles. And again, notice how he says, listen, do you see what I'm about to tell you? There's nothing new in this. Nothing new in this whatsoever. In fact, what I'm about to tell you has been around since the very beginning. That's what he says here. And what is that? We should love one another. It's fundamental. It's foundational to all genuine Christianity. For John, this is the number one defining trait of those who are children of God. Love is the preeminent Christian virtue. It is the first segment of the fruit of the Spirit. It is the sign of the reality of faith. It is the greatest of the three abiding Christian graces in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, love. Greatest of these is love. An unloving Christian is an oxymoron. As Hard Marshall writes... In his commentary in these verses, a person cannot come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. There honestly cannot be any such thing as an unloving Christian. And as someone who claims to be a child of God and doesn't love the person sitting beside them in church, in front of them or behind them, Never mind their neighbours or their enemies. Which Jesus explicitly teaches us to love as well. But let's leave them for a moment. Let's just concentrate on in here. Loving each other. But if someone claims to be a Christian and cannot love the person sitting beside them or in front of them or behind them. Then there's real cause for concern. There's adequate reason to challenge or at least question their vocal claims to know Jesus. How have I spoke about other Christians this week? What have my thoughts towards other Christians been like this week? As John teases this, this out, he, uh, he turns to two very different people. He turns to Cain, as in Genesis 4, Cain, 
And he turns to Jesus Christ. One stands as a sobering example of how not to love. The other person is the prototype of love. And he stands as a challenging example or a role model of how we as the children of God are meant to love one another. But let's start with Cain. The prototype of hatred. He's the guy who belonged to the the wrong family. He is a child of the devil. Now again, some of you are thinking that's harsh, David. But I'm only trying to reflect how John portrays him here. John says he belongs to the evil one. The child of the devil. I'm sure most of us know the Genesis 4 story. That instead of loving his brother Abel, Cain's attitude to him was dominated by hatred and anger. Cain's heart is pretty messed up. And even though God did give him a chance, actually God gave him a second chance to put things right, he decided to let anger and hatred and bitterness go down and fester within his heart. And Cain opted to take things into his own hands, and so he lured Abel into the fields and he bludgeoned his sibling to death. And so John refers to this very vivid narrative And then he says this, do not be like Cain. It's there at the beginning of verse 12. Now I've got to be really honest here. Because you see, whenever I read these verses in 1 John 3 and in Genesis 4, I am initially tempted to distance myself from John's teaching. And his sentiments. Like why, John, would you refer to such an extreme example when you're talking about loving one another? I mean, it seems incredibly risky. Is it not more likely that John's readers, us included, are going to excuse ourselves at this point and think, well, do you know something? That is just way over the top. The kind of hatred that leads to cold-blooded murder is all a bit out there, isn't it? I mean, yes, there are Christians who do my head in. There are Christians who wind me up, who annoy the life clean out of me, but kill them? It's highly unlikely. And so I don't quite get this at one level. Do not be like Cain. It's very unlikely I'm ever going to be like Cain. Do you know, whenever I, I start going down that road in my thinking, I find myself brought up short by the teaching of Jesus, as so often happens. Who always gets to the core of the issue. Who reframes my understanding. Who challenges my tendency to dilute the potency of God's word. Because what was it that Jesus taught regarding this mindset in his infamous so-called Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. See, Jesus knew that anger violates God's command to love. And the anger that Jesus refers to here is this seething, brooding bitterness against someone else that threatens to wreak havoc in your life and in theirs. That if you leave it unaddressed and unconfessed, it's probably going to lead to emotional turmoil, mental distress, potential violence and definite untold spiritual damage. And so this morning as we read John's strong advice, do not be like Cain, can I encourage you to search your heart? Is there anger in your heart towards another brother and sister in Christ? Is there? And if there is, can I urge you to sort it out? 
do the right thing. Listen to how God spoke into Cain's life. Way back in Genesis 4. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, Cain. But you must rule over it. You see, Cain ignored the warning. Sin came crashing through the door of his heart and the rest is history. His actions were evil. Do not be like Cain, brothers and sisters in Christ. Love each other. Love each other. And look at verse 14 because it's why it's vital. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. In other words, hanging on to and entertaining this level of anger, bitterness and hatred towards another Christian without addressing it, without doing or seeking to do the right thing, raises, as I've said before, all sorts of uncomfortable questions about the integrity of your claims. And at the end of verse 14, a no comment is required on this. Anyone, says John, who does not love remains in death. John's language is very pointed. And the implications are deeply unnerving. David Jackman, in uh, his commentary on these verses, says this, Anyone who holds it on to a spirit of bitter hatred and hostility towards a brother and sister in Christ cannot possibly be at the same time indwelt by the life of the Holy Spirit of God. Just before we uh, turn our attention to the, the second person that John refers to as an altogether different kind of example, let me just make a brief comment about the second half of verse 15 because a number of people have got confused about what John has written here. John says, And you know that no murderers have eternal life in them. Now that does not mean that they never can or never will have eternal life in them. Someone like a Cain can be forgiven if they cry out to God in genuine repentance and confession. Murder, hatred, unrighteous anger are not unforgivable sins. Of course there may still be certain consequences to face and live with for the rest of your earthly life. But there is always a spiritual way back to God. There always is the opportunity for eternal life, no matter what you have done. The only unforgivable sin is never coming to that place of asking for forgiveness for your sin. Let's move on. Verse 16, John then shifts the spotlight onto the second character. And in a world where love has become so misunderstood, so misinterpreted, so tarnished and so twisted, John provides us with beautiful simplicity. I love this. This is how we know what love is. And you can almost sense everyone hanging on to the edge of their seats the very first time this letter was read out. Because remember, this letter was read into a church context the first time around. This is how we know what love is. And everybody's sitting there, tell us, John, please tell us what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus stands as the antithesis to Cain. Direct opposite, pulls apart. Cain, governed by hatred, takes another person's life. Christ, governed by love, gives up his life in order to save and rescue others. You see, if hatred 
reveals itself in murder, ultimately. Love taken to its conclusion reveals itself in sacrifice. And as John says, and we must never miss the truth of this, Jesus laid down his life for us. Nobody took it from him. Jesus gave it up. And that's why so much of our praise this morning has focused on the cross. Because it's there, it's here that we discover what love is. It's here that we encounter the vast and immense love that the Father has shown to us. Look at the first verse of chapter 3. Stephen read it first and referred to it last week. See, says John, what great love the Father has lavished on us. But what are we looking at? See, says John, what great love the Father has lavished on us. What are we looking at, John? How do we see this extravagant, outrageous love? Well, says John, in this latter part of the chapter, you look at the cross of Christ. You see, you don't just read a definition of love, you see a demonstration of it. You're not only dealing with emotion, you're confronted by live action. God doesn't just talk about love. He showed it. It's active, tangible, visible, powerful. And just as you attempt, and just as his initial readers were attempting to get their heads around the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of this love, and as they reveled in it and as they worshipped in response to it, John then drops an absolute bombshell. Or at least it must have felt like that. Those hearing this letter read for the first time not only are sitting at the edge of their seats, they're now falling off their seats. Because here's what John says. And we, you, you've got to now go and lay down your life for one another. That changes everything. You can just sense this deep intake of breath, this challenge to live as Jesus lived, to walk as Christ walk. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's not for the self-centered. It's not for those who want an easy life. There are major, major implications involved in being a child of God and in claiming to know Jesus. There is a significant realignment required in our thinking. There's a tangible counter-cultural dimension to this way of life. This is about being prepared to sacrifice. This is about intentionally putting others first. This is about going the extra mile and then some for the person who's sitting beside you this morning in front of you and behind you. It's highly unlikely that any of us will ever be in a position to actually have to lay our lives down for another person. It's not impossible. It's highly unlikely. But here's the issue. The defining issue as far as John is concerned. If the love of Jesus is seen in the cross and the lavish love of the Father seen in Jesus, if that has really won your heart, if we are the real deal, if we are the genuine article, then we shall want to and must express that same quality of love in our devotion to our Christian brothers and sisters. So that means you've got to go and love without counting the cost. You've got to love without any thought of return. You've got to love without weighing up the pros and cons or trying to figure out whether or not the person deserves your love. We are called to a way of love that is entirely without self-interest. And John says, it's that way of love that indicates real faith. It's a love that impacts and influences our money, our time, our energy, our possessions, our diaries. We ought to, says John, lay down our lives for one another. Are we up for that? Am I up for that? I get paid to do it to a certain extent. 
Is that our attitude towards those in our community, in our church, to our brothers and sisters in Christ? And how is that love seen? And how is that love revealed? The danger here, whenever again I read this, is this. It all sounds very idealistic. Big concepts, profound thoughts, nice ideas. But what I like about John's letter at this point is that he brings it right down to earth. It gets very practical here. Look at verse 17. If any one of you has material possessions, pause there for a moment. That's all of us. Without exception here this morning. may not feel that we've got lots, but every one of us has material possessions. If any one of you has material possessions, and you see a brother and sister in Christ, and remember we're dealing with the people in here, in need, but you have no pity on them. In other words, you're indifferent towards them. Your heart is disengaged. Well then John confronts us with a question, an uncomfortable wish it wasn't there kind of question. If you've no pity, how can the love of God be in you? If you see a need, if you become aware of a need in the life of one of your Christian brothers and sisters, and if you have the means to meet that need or at least help towards meeting that need, and you decide for whatever reason to do nothing, then it would seem, and I'm only trying to reflect God's word here, folks. I'm I'm not trying to send anybody in a guilt trip, and I'll return to that in a minute. But it would seem that it may be time to query the integrity of what we say and sing. And so then John says this, listen dear children, don't love with words or tongue. Don't just say it. But love with actions and in truth. Which just restates and re-echoes and reaffirms a central theme in John's letter. Listen, if you keep claim to be a Christian, please prove it. Don't just say it, show it. Don't just preach it, practice it. It can be so easy to love with words. To express sympathy. To promise to pray. To offer an encouraging thought. The real challenge is to actually then go and love and date. Put feet on the prayers. Jesus didn't just say he loved us. He laid down his life for us. And John says, so please go and lay down your lives for one another. And I said, I'm not uh, wanting to send anyone on a guilt trip, self-included, although I've actually gone on quite a major guilt trip this week. Uh, But I'm pretty sure that most of us feel the intensity of God's word in this issue. And right now, I reckon there will be some people who are beating themselves up internally. And there will be some people who are wondering, you know, am I really a Christian or not? But if that's the case, that's great. That is not necessarily a bad thing because it reveals that this matters. It reveals that we are conscious of the challenges and the importance of living and walking as Jesus did. That we know how much we need God's help to love one another at this level. And so my hope and prayer for this morning is not to leave us all feeling rubbish or confused or dejected. But it is to spur us on to love and good 
deeds. It's to awaken or to reawaken our commitment to Jesus. And so if you're slightly troubled by this morning, brilliant. It must have struck. It must be striking a chord. The real question is, well, what am I going to do from here on? And as I listen to God's word, as it rips me open, as Hebrews 4.12 says, God's word will do, as it does that in my life, where do I go from here? Because this is a new day. New day. New opportunities now confront me with regard to whether I will love and walk in this way and reflect Jesus and lay down my life for others in the way Jesus laid down his life for me. And it can start in the small things. Never despise the small things. I'm not suggesting we all empty our pockets and start giving our money away. Although if you come across a need and you want to do that, then feel free. But what about going and speaking to someone after the service during coffee that you don't normally speak to? What about taking a risk? What about stepping outside your comfort zones? There might be another brother or sister, a Christian brother or sister here this morning. They don't need your money, but you know what they could really do with your time? And just your friendship. And just a word, a conversation. It's a small act of kindness and love, but it kind of has to start somewhere, folks. Back to the text, I'm nearly done. And this is so good. Because John must have realized that the content of this letter was going to unsettle his readers. And it was going to leave them feeling pretty low. And so look at verse 20. He writes this. Listen, see if your hearts condemn you. (laughs) We know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So if you're feeling a little condemned this morning, if your heart's giving you a hard time, that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. In fact, at anything, it reveals the absolute opposite. If your heart's giving you a hard time this morning, it reveals the opposite. It shows that your heart is crying out for a more consistent Christ-like love. And thankfully, God's heart is bigger than ours. Sorry, God is bigger than our hearts. He knows everything. God knows exactly where each one of us is at this morning. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our successes. He knows our failures. And so he speaks into our lives and he invites us to go deeper and takes us further via his Holy Spirit who is wanting to make us more and more like Jesus provided we surrender to his word and we hear the call upon our lives and we model it and we walk this way. And then verse 23 says this, just at the end. And this is his command. To believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. And some people have have drawn attention to the fact that 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 seems like two commands. To believe and to love. And yet, what he actually says is, this is his command, singular. In other words, God wants us to do one thing. Believe in Jesus and love others. They go together. Can't have one without the other. Someone has said, you cannot believe without loving nor love without believing. And so as we go from here this morning, may each one of us who find ourselves in this church first Sunday of June 2012, may we know that we are children of God by our belief in Jesus combined with our love for one another. Because that would seem to be how a watching world will know that we are his disciples.